You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. As we continue this sermon series, if you're newer to Mercy's Door, I want you to know we're kind of go left to right through whole books of the Bible here. So we're about halfway through the book of Hosea at this point. Everything's available to you on the website, mercysdoor.org, if you need to go back and kind of catch up how we got where we're going. But the prophet Hosea uh, is a distinct prophet uh, used in the hand of God, and that similar to Jesus himself, God required of Hosea to go and incarnate or embody a message to his people Israel through actual events that would transpire in his own personal life and his marriage and with his children. And we kind of covered that in the first three chapters. And then as that is the backdrop of his prophecy, God then drives Hosea out among the people over a season to speak prophetic words over them, which when highlighted against the events in Hosea's own life would help lift the people's eyes to see their sin for what it was, to see their rebellion for what it was, to see their wickedness for what it was, and to show them the true spirit of repentance and to show them the, the divine discipline of the Lord. And so last week, we did kind of a deep dive on the doctrine of the discipline of God. And, 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 and we talked about how when the discipline of God is held up against the backdrop of his character, when we see that his discipline is always unto the restoration of his children and not unto their destruction, it changes the way that we interact with his discipline to the point that we can almost say, God, like, thank you for the heavy hand that took from me the idols that I was clinging to because you're faithful to replace those idols with your very self for my eternal life. Well, the prophecy continues this week in really a, a bleak passion in, verse, in, ch- in chapter 7, verse 1, where Hosea says to the heart of God here that he says, I, in verse 1, I, I would heal Israel. When I, I would heal Israel, but the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely and the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. And so we, I want to kind of break this out into two or three parts here. I want to first highlight that the Lord is breaking into ch- from chapter 6 where he had declared all of these judgments and disciplines that were coming for them, and he curbs all of that against this sentence when I would heal you, I would heal you. And in specific, what the Lord is talking about here is, is healing from the, from the judgments and the disciplines that are coming for them because it's going to hurt. There's captivity coming for them. There is, there's destruction coming on their lands where he's going to, to physically tear down all of these pagan idol worship stations that they've built up and all of these alliances that they've built with foreign nations and turning their, their backs on him. He's going to bring them low before he binds them up. And he says, I would heal you of these things, but when I would, whenever I would heal you, well, your iniquity is further revealed. The evil deeds of Samaria are further revealed. So he's expressing God's intention and his willingness to heal, and that's a theme that we've been tracking, but he's talking about the healing process actually being hindered by their iniquity, being hindered by their sin. It suggests that when God would bring restoration to the people, and we we saw this in the former chapters, that each time that he would prosper them, that he would bring his hand of healing upon them, that that their bodily healing would lead to their spiritual decay, that he would do a good thing for them, and then they would credit the good thing to a false god, to a pagan god, to an idol, 
and then they would, they would go deeper and further away from them, for away from God in, his, in their spiritual rebellion. And so he says that in withholding his hand of healing from them bodily, circumstantially, he's actually caring for their spiritual iniquity. And so he's, he's in a process of bringing them into spiritual healing, which is more significant to him than restoring their national boundaries or any of the good things that they, that they ask of him. And so it's magnifying their sinfulness, and it's bringing, them, it's bringing it into the front of the picture, and it's this stumbling block to their healing. And when he calls out Samaria, the evil deeds of Samaria, you guys should know that's the capital city of the northern kingdom. And so he's saying this is pervasive. It, it's right at the heart of the northern kingdom. Your sin is just pervasive. It's all over the nation of Israel. And he says that the nature of their sin is like this. They deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. So when we think about them dealing falsely, this is something for you to, to think inwardly about. God cares deeply about dealing in honesty. But when we deal in falsehood, we're going to get here later in this chapter in Hosea, God is centrally concerned with the people understanding the character of God and from the place from which the blessings of God come and the testimony of the people of God telling the truth about God. And so when we don't rightly worship him, when we respond incorrectly to his goodness in our life, we are dealing falsely with others and we're dealing falsely with God. Now, there was more pervasive dealing falsely in this time like there is in your life. Just every time you lie, every time that you deceive, there's, there's the general dealing falsely. But in this chapter, God is very preoccupied with the people of God telling the truth through their lives and through their worship and through their enjoyment of him, telling the truth about who he is in relation to them. And he's saying, in all of your idol worship, you're bearing false testimony about who I am, about my goodness. And he says that the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. So there's images of internal and external threats. And I think these are, these are illustrating the pervasiveness of this dealing falsely, that it starts in your own home. This is where the thief breaks in to your home where he steals up all of the goodness of God. The, the, thief is, the thief is among you at your dinner table in your living room, he's saying. And he's not just in the house. He's also in the yard, and he's raiding and pillaging the land. And so he's, it, it's showing us that God has, has peered in to the lives of his people here in the 8th century B.C., and he has seen that each home needs to be held accountable for its sin, and that the people as a whole, upon the whole land, are to be held accountable for their sin. And obviously, I've been preaching this all month long, that if this beckons you to look inward and to start comparing yourself to Israel, and I think we're supposed to, like ultimately, that, it'd be a horrible sermon for me to come up here and say to you that like, and here's the point, look at how you're like Israel, and then don't be right? Because you are like Israel. When you look inwardly, you're going to find that just like the, the people of God in the 8th century, the people of God today are very often marked by spiritual infidelity. We turn to lesser gods. We turn to lesser idols. We let sin invade our own homes and our backyards. We would, if we were to truly inspect our lives, we would find that on many days and in many ways that we look much like the people of God in the 8th century. And so what good would it be for me to stand here before you and say, 
Don't do that. Well, don't do that. But what do you do with the fact that you have, that you already have, and that you will again? Where is our escape if we look inwardly and we find that we are much like the original people of God? Well, the narrative of the gospel tells us that while our sins are an enemy to our healing, that through Christ's sacrifice, the restoration overcomes the power of our sin. See, until Christ invades this space, we must cooperate with God in order to bring about our healing because we're throwing up obstacles. And he's saying, you're ultimately not going to walk in the way of new life, not in your own strength. That I can show you the way, I can, I can tell you what to do, I can take things away from you, I can do all of that, but in and of yourself, you are not going to walk in the newness of life that I'm offering to you, not in your own strength. And so he offers us another So the Lord God comes in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son of God. And this is where we sing, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Jesus, this great physician, overcomes the obstacles that we put up to the healing that God would offer us so that ultimately we will never hear the Lord say again, I would heal you, but, I would heal you, But that's not the language that we have with our Father anymore because that obstacle that he held out to his people was resolved in the person of Jesus who came and did a work within us so that no longer do we testify falsely against him, but the spirit of truth has come to indwell us, that it testifies back to him all of the worship that he has owed, even when your lips are speaking something different. He's interceding for you, and this is huge. Hosea chapter 7 verse 2, he moves on and says, God is saying, they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Their deeds surround them. They're before my face. When he says they don't consider that I remember all of their evil, I think the people of Israel are being depicted as being forgetful or dismissive of the fact that God in his omniscience is fully aware of their crimes, of their moral evils, of their sin, of their decay, that he has peered in and he's seen it all. They are wrongly assuming that their sins are hidden or that he has forgotten them. And then one further, he says, now their deeds surround them and they are before my face. Their deeds surround them and they're before my face. So they're not just believing he's forgotten them. They're hidden from him. But they're also, they've become unaware of the fact that the consequences of their sin are now swallowing them up. That, that when they look out at the vastness of the, of, of the harm that they have done to themselves and to others, they can't even see it or connect it to their sin. And so as, as they said, Lord, the Lord doesn't see it, Lord doesn't care, Lord doesn't remember it. They're, it's actually heaping up judgments against them, and and they can't see it. They surround them, and they don't see it, but he says, but they are before my face. He says, I do see it. See all of it. It's heaped up right in front of me. I think this ought to cause us all to pause, right? Like, the Lord God is fully aware of all of our misgivings, all of our sin. He sees it right before his face. He's aware of sin that you are not aware of, where you are ignorant to your sin, where you've been stupefied to your sin, where you're calling evil good and you're calling good evil, where your eyes, which are not tuned to see these things rightly, the Lord has looked in 
And he sees it all. It's right before his face. I think it just causes us to pause for a second. And this isn't ultimately for all of you, but because it might be for one of you, I need to preach it to you that this truth shows you that there is no way out, that there is no dodging the accounting that God has done of your sin through hiding, that there is no dodging the accounting that the Father has done of your sin through effort, through works of righteousness, that you can't earn it off, you can't pretend it didn't happen, you can't hide it away, you can't cover it in other good deeds, that all of your iniquity, all of your sin is clear as day before the Father. And if anything is going to happen with that mound of filth, he's going to, be ha- he's going to have to be the one who does it. And so again, what is our way out? On the one hand, you want to hear, well, by the Spirit's help, I'm just going to, I'm going to live righteously so that my pile is smaller that's heaped up before the face of God. And maybe if my pile is smaller than Hitler's pile, then the Lord's going to grade me on a curve and he'll declare me righteous enough. But the standard of righteousness that the Father holds out to you is perfection. You were made to reflect his image. In the very image of God, you were made to reflect his perfection. Your sin breaks relationship with God. For this to be fixed, you need somebody to stand in for you because you can't do what the Father requires of you. So although we understand that our God who sees all holds us accountable for that sin, what we need to remember as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, what you need to repent and believe today is that your escape is that our God who holds us accountable for all the sin that he has seen perfectly with his eyes, he has held Christ accountable on your behalf. That in taking your sin and heaping it upon the shoulders of Christ and and having him take the penalty that you deserved on your behalf, that this is your escape. Such that it's not that you try to heap up a smaller pile or you try to cover it up with a tarp of righteousness but that you cling to the perfect righteousness purchased for you by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your behalf to cover your transgressions. It's through Christ alone that you can be reconciled to God. Now in Hosea chapter 7 verse 3, the Lord shifts his attention to the kings. He says, by their evil, the people's evil, our evil, they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. When he says by their evil, they make the king glad. He, it's, I mean, this is an indictment on the king of the northern kingdom. He's saying that when the people sin, you love it. You, it's not just that you turn a blind eye to it. It's not just that you were ignorant of it, but you delight in the wickedness of the people, that you encourage it, that under your leadership, that the people have gone astray, and he's holding the king accountable. And then he looks out at the lesser leaders, the princes, And he says, by the treachery of the people, they are made glad. Treachery and deceit and lying and wickedness. There's this seriously corrupt leadership that is is taking place in the 8th century B.C. in the northern kingdom. And the Lord is saying, I see it all. He's addressing the kings and the princes directly. And 
obviously there's an indictment here against leaders who ignore the goodness of God and the righteousness of God and who turn a blind eye to wickedness and who even encourage wickedness. There's all of that, but way more than that, I think there is a, a contrast to be seen in the kings of the 8th century and the kings of the modern day against the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, who leads us always in perfect righteousness and who always denounces and conquers all forms of evil. See, in each denouncement that the Lord gives us here in chapter 7, and in each judgment that we read, in each statement of why discipline is coming to them, what we're seeing is a diagnosis of a problem that needs healing. And the hand of discipline of the Lord is only as good as the hand of healing that comes behind it. And we've said that the Lord, against the backdrop of his character, is disciplining his people unto the restoration. But where is the restoration to be found if they look inwardly and they determine, I'm just going to do it again? The testimony of their whole history has been that my repentance is temporary at best, and eventually the allure and the draw of sin calls me so sweetly away, and again I'm found needing the hand of discipline of my Lord. Where is my deliverance? Where is my escape? Where is the hand of healing going to be found? And it's found in the hand of Jesus Christ. It's not like it was in the 8th century B.C. We're not trying to show God true remorse by our effort and true repentance by our effort. We, are, we have come to know that the spirit of true repentance is a gift given to us by the Spirit alone, and the Lord has to do this for you. In verse 4, Hosea says, they're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. You guys, I don't think I need to keep hitting on they're all adulterers. We've been talking about that, but they're literally worshiping actual other false pagan gods, and they're following all the pagan rituals for worshiping those gods. And so this is always squarely in view whenever God calls out spiritual adultery. But we're going to tend to want to think that because we haven't constructed a pillar or built a golden calf, or bowed before an object, and started calling it God, or worshiping it, that we are incapable of idolatry. But that's simply not true. What we've talked about is that the sins of mankind, in, the, in this sermon series, what we're trying to emphasize is that by the time you're sinning with your hands, by the time you're bowing down in front of a pillar that you built with your own hands, you decided way before you ever put the chisel to the wood, and started carving the thing, that it was going to be worth worshiping. You, you determined that before you ever did anything. It took work for you to construct and build up an idol that you might fall down before it and worship it. But the nature of idols is that we make them. And ultimately, it's self-worship. It's worshiping the works of my hands and finding them to be worthy, to be exalted and praised. And so we fall down before the things that we've done. You know what's great about a God that you made is he always tells you what you want to hear. He always does what you want him to do. When you pray, you hear your own voice talking back to you. When you ask the wooden thing for what you want, it always tells you what you want to hear. And so the Lord sees their spiritual adultery, and he calls us, they're all adulterers. And guys, left to our own devices, we are all spiritual adulterers. We turn from the God who made us, the one true God, the only one worthy of our worship, and we worship the works of our own hands. And then he talks about the impact of this. He says they're like a heated oven 
whose baker ceases to stir the fire for the, from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. It takes a long time to knead dough and wait for it to be leavened, is the point there. So he stops stirring the fire, and he goes and kneads the dough and, until it is leavened. And by the time you return to the fire, well, that's going to be a very hot oven because he stopped tending the oven. So it's a metaphor that's talking about sinful passions that are fiercely hot, that are burning within us. But there's almost this, this point where he says that there, there comes a time where you no longer need the external provocation of that burning rage within you, that the baker doesn't need to come and keep stoking it. They just leave the fire to itself, and it smolders, and it gets hotter, and it gets hotter, and it becomes self-perpetuating. And it's an illustration of sin, and it's an invitation for us to think about the sin in our own lives that are impassioned within us. There was a point in my sermon prep where I had thought, what is this text about? Like, what is the Lord getting at above anything else in this chapter? And it seems to me that he is shooting arrows at the heart of sin, that he cares about getting at the root or the origin of why our hands ever get to bowing down like we've talked about. Why do we sin? And we're going to get into specific sins that the people fall into, but there's a reason why it all starts here, that the seed of adultery is something burning within you, something burning within you with increased intensity, something that is persisting and festering within you, something that has remained unchecked within you. And it starts like in the Garden of Eden as an accusation against God, but the accusation against God, even that's not the first thing. The accusation comes on the other side of the first thing, the seed thing, which is, I doubt that a need is going to be met. I doubt that a desire is going to be met. There's a seed, a little whisper, where we look at God and we look at our problem and we start to make a conclusion where I'm not sure that Christ alone, that my Father alone, can provide this for me, can take care of this need. And so something starts to grow. Something starts to fester. And then proceeding from our lips are accusations against God. And we're communicating not just doubts to God, we're not relating with God and talking to God about these things that are happening within us, but we're accusing God and we're, and we're thinking things directed at him, but we won't look at him. We won't process them with him. And so there's these unchecked, unprocessed feelings, unchecked, unprocessed desires, unchecked, unprocessed needs, unchecked, unprocessed wounds, and they fester, and they boil over, and they burn within you like a heated oven whose baker ceased to stir the fire. And you look up, and the word that the Lord has for you is you've become an adulterer. You went seeking after another lover because there was a felt need that you would not bring to the Lord, that you would not process with the Lord, that you would not address with the Lord. And we get to verse 5, and we start to see some of the ways it shows up. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the mockers. 
So when we say on the day of the king, we're probably talking about a public holiday or maybe the king's birthday or a national day of celebration. And so it's taking place during a time where the whole nation is supposed to have unity and, and gladness and celebration. And so they're happening at that time. And then he says the princes became sick during that event with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the mockers. There's this indulgence and this drunkenness that's taking place among the leaders of Israel during this thing, and the king is participating in the sin alongside the people, and he's right, he's like buddying up right next to those who scoff at morality and decency. These are the mockers. So the king is indistinguishable from the crowd as they just drink deeply and join in in mockery of the Lord's goodness. And I just think that there was a, as I got to this verse, I realized that there was like a, a track to where we are going, that the Lord starts with this seed, a feeling, an unchecked festering feeling that smolders and then burns up within you to an accusation, to a refusal to process before God, to being called an adulterer. I start looking to other things, and then he highlights one of the things that the king of Israel turned to. He says that he got hot, sick, with the heat of the wine. I want to remind you guys of the dangers of indulging in excess in your sinful idolatry. We've, we've talked this morning about a God who sees all, and I need you to hear that that means that he sees you in your drunkenness, and he sees you when you take one more pill than you were prescribed, and he sees you in your pornography addictions, and he sees you when you're zombified in front of your phone to the neglect of your family, and he sees you in all of the passions that rage within you, that, that burn within you, all of the sinful excess that, that drives you to the foot of some lesser idol and says, this is where my comfort's going to be found. This is where my peace is going to be found. This is where my sleep is going to be found. This is where my relationship's going to be restored. This is how I'm going to be okay. Don't you see that you didn't end up there overnight? It didn't start with a bottle. It started way back here when we said, my Lord will not or cannot comfort me. I must find something else. And it's alluring. In Ephesians 5, we, uh, uh, Paul writes about this at length, and he talks about in light of the gospel of Christ. Okay, this, is for, this is for us, for the New Testament believers. Paul said, we're to be therefore imitators of God as beloved children, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness, we must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, that is, those who are not children of God. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, and anything that becomes visible is light. Hold on to that. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in this passage, what Paul says is that everything that is revealed, everything that is made visible, everything that is brought into the light, in itself becomes light. He says that in confession, in exposing works of darkness, that when the light casts out the darkness, that the thing itself becomes a vessel of light. And this is the difference between the sons of disobedience who are carried away in their idolatry and the sons of the living God who in their idolatry confess it and bring it into the light in order that Christ can get glory over the way that he steps in and meets the need that you were seeking to meet in your idol. The Christian life is meant to be marked by a a life of repentance, not a life of secrecy and hidden sin and hidden dependence on these idols for our comfort. So church, if the Lord already sees if your pile is already before his face, if your excesses, if your addictions, if your failure, if your sin, if your brokenness, if your dependence upon lesser gods and lesser forms of, of, of health and goodness and life are all known to God already, why does he call us to confess? Well, he calls us to confess in order that it can be revealed, in order that he can shine his light on it, in order that it itself can be turned for light. This is the nature of repentance. It's where you take the thing that you will not process before the Lord, where you won't even look backwards and understand how it came to be that this fire is burning so hot because you wouldn't process that thing with the Lord back here when it was just a few coals smoldering. We must learn to foster relationship with Christ where we bring our stuff to him early and often and process our hurts and our needs and our anger, our frustration, our accusations against him, all of it right in front of him as if he already knows, because guess what? He does. He does, and he is a safe place for you to go. And if you feel him prying from you, those idols, know that he's doing it for your good. But I implore you, do not persist in bowing down to these things which are chains around your neck. Make it known that we can walk together into the light. Hosea chapter 7, verse 6, God says, With hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. I didn't like the word intrigue in that translation because it was confusing for me, but they take it from the root word for to plot or to devise or to think up something. 
And so it's like uh, with hearts like an oven, they approach their, their plotting or their ideas about, about how they're going to get their needs met. And their hearts are there compared to this fiercely heated oven like we talked about. It says all night their anger, it smolders. And then in the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. And this is, I think, the Lord doubling down and showing us that there is a danger in harboring unchecked emotions that we refuse to bring into his presence to process with him. So I ask you, do you have hidden sins, unresolved conflicts, bitterness that you are allowing to smolder that will eventually set a blaze in your life? I ask you, bring it into the light. Let the Lord cast out the darkness. It's no way to live. And it's not befitting the Christian who's been indwelled with the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit of freedom, not a spirit of slavery. Believe the gospel and bring your anger to the Lord. Be reminded of the grace in Christ Jesus, which allows you for true repentance, which is inclusive of your whole person, of the thoughts, of the feelings, of the heart, of the hands, of the accusations, all of it, he can restore. He will restore. Bring it to him. Verse 7, all of them, they're hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. Their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. I'm not going to keep hitting on hot as an oven. I think you get it, but what's the Lord's conclusion? He's seen all this burning within the people. None of them calls upon me. They don't call upon me. Why won't they call upon me? They're hot as an oven, and they won't call upon me. Don't you see the heart of our Lord? He says, I would heal. I would restore. But they won't call upon me as their anger rages within them, their bitterness, their hurt, their accusations. They don't bring it to me. And he's beckoning us, bring it to me. Bring it to me. How are we reacting to our trials and our difficulties? How are we reacting to our sin and to the consequences of our sin? What are we doing with it? Because you're going to do something with it. You're going to do something with it. On, on Wednesday, that's when my gospel community gathers. I kind of limped in to GC on Wednesday because I was like fresh off of a fight with my wife. And like, I mean like three minutes before. And so I showed up to GC, and I'm kind of like playing the part, and we get to open discussion. I just kind of say, like, I really don't want to be here. I want to be home reconciling with my wife. We just had a fight, and the nature of the fight, and so the, my GC loved me so much. They're like, I got discussion leader. Go home, and it was great, but the nature of the fight was I found myself speaking cruelly to my wife, raising my voice, making accusations, just throwing stuff around, just like, like, this, like this flame that ablazes, just like acting a fool. And she's looking at me, and she's like, like, what is going on here? And suddenly, what is flowing from my mouth but feelings that were way over here, way back there, things that I had not addressed for a whole long time, and suddenly it's just like coming out, and, the, and this, and then this, and it makes me feel like this, and all of that, and it's like, 
We could have talked about that and processed that with the Lord, mind you, way back there. We didn't get here where you're just like bubbling up like that and hurting the people around you overnight. It was unprocessed, unchecked, harmful accusations against God about my lot and all of that, that, that the Lord's like, I, I want to walk with you through that. And here the Lord is saying, they're hot as an oven and no one calls upon me. So surely this consequence exists for us today as well. But do you know that you can first and early and often call upon the Lord? Do you know that Jesus is ever-present to help in your time of need? Do you know that he already knows? Do you know how deeply he cares? Do you know that he entered in to that suffering? That he came for you? That he walked in it for you? that he laid down his own life to solve that issue, to make the love of God known to you. Do you understand this? Because if you do, you'll talk to him. But when we struggle to believe the gospel, we stop talking to our Father. And that's the role of community, I think, is just to continue to point each other back to the gospel, back to our Lord, to testify to the goodness of Christ, to his ever present love for you, his care for you, that you might talk to your father, that he would bring healing to you. Verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim's like a cake not turned. I'm going to move quickly over this one, but a cake not turned was a fun picture for me. In my mind, one side is like black, this is like my cooking, and the other side is like not done. And so it's like battery on the top and hard on the bottom. He says the northern kingdom's like that on account of mixing himself with the peoples. And there's, I think, present in that a call for us to consider how the Lord, when that word sanctifies that we talked about a couple weeks ago, when he sets his people apart, there's meant to be a distinction in where you go. There's meant to be a distinction about how you worship, meant to be a distinction about how you carry yourself because you're functioning under a whole different set of rules, a whole different God, a whole whole different spirit. Everything's changed for the Christian, and it's meant to be distinct. But when we intermix with the peoples, where where we're kind of Christian, and we attach the other ideologies and the other gods and the other religions of the world and the other hopes of the world, all the promises of the secular world to Christianity, and we cloud it up, and it's like Jesus plus. This is the cake unturned. The cake unturned is not fully committed to, to, to the Lord. It's partially committed to the Lord, and the result is that both sides are ruined. Both sides are ruined, the top and the bottom, one overcooked and one undercooked. And I could play out that metaphor, but I feel like I'd be adding to the text. I'm going to try not to. So instead, I'm going to um, read to you from, uh, from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In Revelation 3, Jesus makes an accusation against the, the church in Laodicea. He says, the Words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. 
would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So he says, you make all of these claims and you attach those claims to me, but you're ignorant of what you're saying. And this is the same estate that I think that, that Hosea is exposing in Israel at this time is they're blind to their own wickedness. They're blind to their own idolatry. They just carry on gladly saying, we're, we're the people of God. We're so prosperous. Remember, the impetus for all of this is that the Lord did good for them, and then they took it and they spat in the face of God. He said, you're not walking as my people. You're wanting the benefits of being my people without the relationship with me. And he's saying it's, he's saying it's no good, and so he's bringing judgment to them. Well, New Testament Scripture testifies similarly that when we interwed our ideologies like this, where we're just kind of like, kind of, like, I, like yeah, I want the benefits of the Lord, but I don't really care to know him. I think one of the ways that we do this primarily is we think about Jesus primarily about the Lord of our future, that when I die, I'm going to need him, that, that he, I care about what Jesus has to say, and I care about Jesus's function in my eternal life, but on this side of eternity, I'm going to need Jesus plus, and we start heaping up other things in order to make this life as comfortable as possible, just to hedge our bets, to cover all of our bases, just in case that new life isn't as good as promised, just in case eternal life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I want to make sure this one's pretty good too. And so we, 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 we build these, we, these other idols, and we're worshiping both. And this is, is evident in all of Old Testament Scripture, but it was also evident in many of the New Testament churches that there was an intermixing of believing the gospel and believing totally other religions to include the Old Testament Hebrew religion built on the law. And so some of you are like, I, I want to believe in grace, but just in case his grace is not sufficient, I also want to make sure that I've got a great resume that I can show the Lord on that day so that Listen, I, I know that Jesus is, is willing to help out, but I want to need his help as, as little as possible. And so hopefully, you know, I'm just hedging my bets here. If Christ isn't sufficient, my works will be. Others of you, it's more new age than that. It's, I'm not even really sure about all of this Christianity stuff, but I'm going to pray the prayer or look to the future and say like, just in case, I'll, I'll do that but I'm really more of just a spiritual being, and, I, and, and I, I'm, I'm about that spiritual life. And I'm kind of picking and choosing and taking parts of lots of different faith systems and beliefs and all of that because I just kind of want to be surrounded by people who are thinking about higher beings and things like that. It's a cake unturned. It's a, it's a mixed cake. And the Lord says that the result is disastrous. One side is scorched, the other side is raw, and it is not the picture of maturity that we're called to. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters in Matthew chapter 6, 24, and he called us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our soul and with all our strength, with all our minds. 
And failure to observe that first and great commandment is really failure to observe all of them. And it highlights our great need for Christ because he's the only one who ever really did. And that's what I'm trying to say to you, that you can cling to Christ alone and have the fullness of all the goodness of God, or you can cling to Christ light. I kind of want him, but I kind of want all of these things too. It makes me think about the rich young ruler who he came and he earnestly pursued Jesus and he said, good teacher, tell me what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said to him, you know the commandments? And he says, yes, I've, I've kept all of them since my youth. And he says, well, go then and sell all that you have and give the proceeds to the poor and come follow me. He says that the man counting the cost walked away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And he left. It makes me think that there's many of us who are like, I thought the gospel was free. And I need you to hear the gospel is free. It's, you cannot pay for it. But you must lay everything else down in order to take hold of it. That when the Lord hands you himself, you can't grab it while holding idols in your hands. That's why he has this divine discipline. He takes from us our idols and replaces them with himself. You're not paying him for salvation. You're walking away from all other hopes of salvation and clinging to him alone. And this is what we're called to in believing the gospel. In chapter 7, verse 9, Hosea says, Strangers devour his strength. He knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. He's talking about the ignorance of the decay that the sin is bringing upon, it's sapping vitality, he's like turning old, he's like looking in the mirror and like wrinkles are, are rapidly forming on his face and his beard is turning gray and, 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 and his youth and his vitality is being sapped from him and he can't even tell. This is that picture of gray hair sprinkled on him, he doesn't even know it, that, that strangers are devouring his strength, these other ideologies, these other hopes, these other beliefs, they're sapping his strength. That, there, that devotion to Christ alone is the source of our eternal life. There's a stupefying effect of sin where we are just completely and utterly oblivious to the impact that it's having on us until the fire burns over. But in the context of the gospel, we need to remember that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we have been given the wisdom to see this, that we're not like Old Testament Israel, that the Spirit has promised because He's the Spirit of truth and because He indwells you to reveal to you those areas where sin has beset you and to lovingly bring you to repent. You can do this and you can know and you will know. It's the promise of the work of the active living Holy Spirit in you. And so it's not something that you try to muster up. It's not something you do like a detective where you're like trying to, trying to like inspect for gray hairs. It's something the Holy Spirit does in you and through you, but what you're called to do when the Holy Spirit reveals it to you is to obey the Spirit and repent and turn it over to the Lord. That's your part. Now, the pride of Israel testifies to his face and that they do not return to the Lord their God or seek him for all of this. And that's the root of pride, isn't it? We will not seek the face of the Lord. We will not return to the Lord. There's a spiritual blindness and it hinders us from even seeing it to even know to go back to him. Our pride is, is keeping us from this. 
but in humility, we are called to go to Christ. And I need you guys to see the difference, the difference between the pride of man and the humility of the Son of Man, the Son of God, that he came not counting equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself to the point of obedience to death on a cross. This Jesus, who in total humility came not to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many, he stood in for you where you were prideful, and he humbly surrendered himself to the will of the Father for your sake. This is what I'm saying to you. You don't overcome your pride by prideful effort. You overcome the consequences of your pride by surrendering to the humble one. And his humility brings about your new life. You must turn and rely on Christ alone. Elsewise, in uh, verse 11, we read that Ephraim became like a dove or like a pigeon, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. So they start looking to the other nations. And maybe Egypt will help me. Maybe Assyria will help me. And Egypt and Assyria are going to literally be the nations that are going to conquer them and be used in the divine judgment of God. But they start looking to other powers. And isn't this what we do? We start seeing the consequences of our sin, and rather than turning to the Lord, we say, how do I get out of the consequence? Well, maybe a different idol, maybe a more powerful idol, maybe a, a, a mightier owl, uh, uh, idol. I almost said owl because of that dove. <laughs> Where are we placing our trust? Are we wavering like a senseless dove, or are we flying home to Christ as our ultimate source of life? In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So when we're rocked to and fro like the waves of the sea because we're chasing after all of these different things, thinking, I've got to secure these things for myself because I don't trust my God, and, 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 and we're described as that just like all over the place, just vacillating in our faith, do we remember, fly home, fly home. And Jesus will give you rest. Do you go to the rock of ages, to the Lord Almighty, to let his steady hand bring you into the peace that you are seeking? Your need is real. He put those desires within you. But seeking to meet them apart from his good hand is folly. Verse 12, so as they go, these, these silly doves, as they go out flying around, I'm going to spread my net, God says, verse 12. I'm going to bring them down like birds of the heavens. I'll dis I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. And so he describes his hand like a net here, like, like as the people are, are, are seeking out all these other idols and flying all around, they don't know their right hand from their left or their right wing from their left. He's going to throw a net over them, pull them down out of the air, and ground them. And there is no better place to be than grounded by the hand of the Lord. Like, you want to sprint from him? He's going to chase you down. You want to hide from him? He's going to find you. This is a wonderful truth. Our Father does not permit us to flee from the presence of his good and loving hand. He traps us in his net when we are persistent on bringing harm to ourselves. But I also see that God's discipline, he says he's going to discipline us according to the report made to the congregation. I think he's showing that his discipline is fair and fitting and in accord with their transgressions. 
that their sinful needs are known to him, and that their punishment is corresponding to their specific sin, that he's not arbitrary, but he is precise. And I think this causes me at least to, to marvel at, at his disciplinary love. In Hebrews 12, 6, it says that God, um, that the, the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. So it's, it's this view that we have to have about divine discipline, that it's coming from the heart of a loving father, and that his his discipline is fair, and it's just, and it's fitting for what has taken place, and it's for you. Verse 13, woe to them. They've strayed from me. Destruction to them. They've rebelled against me. I, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against them. So woe is, is a twofold judgment. There's woe, like despair that is coming as they look out, and all these things they were hoping in are taken from them, and then there is destruction coming for them. The woe will be on account of him tearing down all of these things, including some of these kings which have been leading the people astray. He says, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And in the persistence of their sin, I think that when we read about speaking lies against me, we're talking about it being in a way that thwarts the redemptive desire of God in the 8th century, that he's doing one thing and the people are testifying something different and the Lord is going to bring an end to these deceitful acts of worship. So when I see God's judgment contrasted against his uh, desire to redeem here, I'm seeing a reminder of the gospel that sin warrants judgment, that if he's seen it all and if he's fair and if he's just and if, and if there's what ought to happen, then the gospel says like, okay, what's the way out? And he's like, the God, our God did not ever turn a blind eye to your sin. And this is something that some of you who are flagellators need to hear. Some of you who are whipping yourself, who are punishing yourself on account of the sin, look at me, stop. Stop adding to the punishment that Christ took on your behalf. Because for every one of you that thinks that you're going to heap up your works of righteousness and that that is going to be how you earn off some debt that you owe to God, there's a whole other group of you who says, I know I could never do that, so you know what I'm going to do? So I'm going to punish me. I'm going to punish me. And that's what you're doing. Some of you, the, the way that you punish yourself doesn't even make sense. It's like, I, I know that my God, you know, doesn't want anything to do with me right now. So, you know, you ever hear like that, that old trope, like if I walked into a church, it would fall down on me or I'd burst into flames kind of thing. Like, I, I, I opt out of community because I'm punishing myself. I opt out of the body of Christ because I'm punishing myself. I isolate and I harm myself on account of what I have done. And what you are saying is that Christ's payment on your behalf was insufficient to satisfy the wrath of God toward your sin and that you need to help him out. And it is the same exact arrogance and pride that drives us to try to add to his life of righteousness or that causes us to want to add to his death. Either his punishment was sufficient or it was not. Either his life was sufficient or it was not. Stop trying to add to the perfect work of Jesus Christ by your obedience and your self-punishment. It doesn't make any sense in light of the gospel. Where we spoke lies against the Father, Jesus Christ in the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily as the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the perfect honesty 
about the Father. So where in verse 13 we read, woe to them, I'd redeem them, but they speak lies against me. We'll never hear that sentence again as the people of Christ because by being indwelled by the person of God in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, you are indwelled by the perfect truth, the spirit of truth. In the image of the invisible God, Christ himself has set his seal upon you so that you are now, when God looks at you, he sees the full truthful testimony about himself flowing from you in your repentance, in your confession, in the conformity to the image of Christ that he is achieving by his spirit in you, perfectly revealed on the day of his return. Verse 14, they don't cry to me from the heart. They wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves and they rebel against me. I just preached to you about this. Why are you gashing yourself? It's not for God. What is it for? For them, it was for their grain and wine. I want something from God. I still don't really believe anything. Like, I haven't dealt with the root thing. Like, let's land this thing. I still haven't dealt with the root thing that caused me to turn to these things in the first place. I still won't talk to God about what was smoldering within me. I still won't acknowledge the way that it blew up and became this inferno and showed up in all these sins of my hand. I don't want to deal with any of that. But now I see the consequences of my sin, and I don't want that. And so I wail on my bed for my grain and for my wine. I'll even flagellate. I will gash myself. But why? Well, I want the grain and wine back. I still won't talk to you, God, about this thing back here. I just, somewhere down the line, you took the idol that I was counting on, and I want it back. So now I'm pleading with you, God, please, Lord, give me my wine back. Please, God, give me my grain back. And he says, even in this, they rebel against me. We need to assess the nature of repentance, friends. Because despair without repentance, it's, it's worthless. There's a futility in seeking relief from God without reconciliation with God, since at best it's a plea for our comfort to be restored in our idols. It's a despair over the loss of an idol, not a despair over loss of relationship with the Lord. And you're going to him, begging him, give me back my idol. That's a worthless despair, and it's not repentance. And there's likewise a futility in trusting in those idols and in those material provisions like grain and wine. In times of distress, I know you do it because I do it too. If I just had this, then I'd be okay. That's the heart of every idol. If I just had this, then I'd be okay. And you put Fill, fill in the blank, anything but the Lord, and you know you're dealing with an idol. The cry to God should be a cry from a heart turned toward him, recognizing your helplessness, totally dependent on him, and tied back to the core of the gospel, that we need to repent and rely on Christ alone as our sure fulfillment, as our fountain of living water, as better than what our idols offer. Verse 15, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. He's saying their strength, I gave it to them, and they're using it 
against me. It's the nature of an idol. In verse 16, they turn but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow, and their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. I want to land with that portrait of a treacherous bow. It says that they turn. This is, an, this is a partial repentance, and it's spit out by God, that they turn from wherever they were looking, and they aim their bow, but it's a treacherous bow. And the treacherous bow is not set. The arrow is not straight. And so I don't turn upward, he says, like he did. They don't turn to me. And they fire, and the arrow misses the mark. That their turning was to someone or something other than me. That they missed the mark. He says that on account of that, it will be their derision in the land. I don't want to do a history lesson this week because we've got enough time to give you more history. But we've talked a little bit about how the Lord is going to use the idols that they turn to in order to bring discipline upon them. And so that's where he brings Egypt into this story, and we'll talk about that more in future weeks. But I want you to know that half-hearted repentance, that misplaced trust, that these are at the heart of the chapter. And this is not me rebuking you for your half-hearted repentance, saying repent better. This isn't me rebuking you for your misplaced trust, saying trust better. It's me trying to show you how God in chapter 7 is showing us how we get there. We get to a half-hearted repentance. We get to a misplaced trust when calamity comes our way because way back there, we wouldn't take the thing and bring it before God in the light. And I'm telling you, if you do it, you will find healing and suddenly your idols will not taste so sweet to you. And I want that for you, church, and that's what I'm going to pray for you. Will you pray for it with me? And this is a quote from Thomas Watson. He said, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And I thought, maybe, but I'd flip it. When Christ is sweet, sin becomes bitter. You've got to go and drink deeply from the fountain of living water, and suddenly you will find that you don't prefer the filthy cistern anymore because you've tasted something better. So don't wait until your sin turns on you to turn to the Lord. Go and taste and see for yourself just how good he is and you will find just how filthy your cisterns are. Let's pray.